coming up, and I don't know if the coronavirus will affect any of your travel plans, but uh, there's something I've noticed about uh, traveling. It, this may just be me or my family, but I notice that when you are far away in a different land, in a different setting, you tend to buy things that you would never purchase if you were at home looking somewhere locally for, for things. I, I was first exposed to this uh, idea growing up. My parents took a trip to Jamaica, and I'm sure they had a fantastic time in Jamaica, but while there, in a marketplace, they bought what had to be, it seemed at least to, to me as a child, as I, as I saw them return this, the biggest straw hat that has ever been made. And I'm sure it looked really cool on the beach, and as it was hanging in the market, I thought, you know, this would be a nice memory of my time there. And yet, if you knew my parents, you knew there is no way they are ever going to wear this massive straw hat. And so I grew up seeing this oversized straw hat uh, sitting in a cupboard in my parents' uh, room uh, all, all growing up, and I just thought, Boy, my parents, what on earth were they thinking buying that thing? Thinking that, of course, when I become an adult, I wouldn't do something so foolish. Well, uh, I was in Mexico and found myself wandering around in the marketplace there, and I was wise enough not to buy the hat. However, I came across a chess set, and I'm not a big chess... I'm, an, I'm at best an occasional chess player, okay? But I came across... This chess play, this uh, game of chess, it was, they had these handcrafted white and pink onyx stone chess pieces. It was beautiful. It probably weighed about 300 pounds. I don't know how it ever ended up in my, my uh, luggage, and I probably should have just kept on moving. But something about it, I'm on vacation, I've got some time. Oh, that looks really nice. So I go over, and I, I, I'm talking to, to the, uh, the, the uh, owner of this particular mark, and I start talking with him. I said, I really love this chess set. And my only problem with the chess set, there was no sticker on it. I didn't know how much it cost. So I'm expressing, boy, I want to buy this thing. This looks really cool. I love it. Just want to know the price. Well, he tells me the price. But before I've even got my wallet out to, to pay for it, because now I know the price, he says, but for you, I've got a discount. And I thought, boy, it must be my honest face. <laughs> this guy's going to give me a discount. This is amazing. And I took out my wallet and I paid it. And even, even this, uh, this seller at this market, I could see the surprise on his face. And even maybe a little touch of disappointment. Like he was looking for a little bit more finesse in the negotiation, right? Totally unprepared. Very little commitment. At least I could have started, maybe not shown quite so much interest at first. Maybe I could have started with a lower number. He comes back with a discount. I, I express dissatisfaction. Then he gives me a lower number, and I give him a counteroffer. And we go back and forth until we both agree, okay, this is, this is a good and fair and reasonable price, and I go off. But I didn't do that, and I probably didn't do that for the same reason that my parents bought a massive uh, hat in Jamaica that they were never going to wear, and I took home this oversized, over 
way too heavy chess set that I was going to play with for very little time and eventually pass on. Because I hadn't really put much thought into it. Hadn't put much effort into really thinking through, what do I want? And how important is this to me? And so I flippantly paid too much for a chess set. And that's probably fine. But I think I bring that same attitude with me to prayer. That often my prayers start off at a very light and flippant place where I will say, yeah, I'd like one of those too, Lord. And I haven't really thought through what it is that I really want. And so as it comes in prayer, as it sometimes does, and as it does in today's passage, where it begins to resemble something a little bit more like a marketplace negotiation, where there is an offer and, and the, God's expecting a counteroffer, and he's, he's looking to see what I will settle for. I begin to see that I haven't really thought through what it is that I most earnestly want. And I think we can do that in prayer. Uh, today's passage is a very interesting one because all month long we've been looking at prayer and we've been walking through various passages that gives us different perspectives on prayer. And today's passage may be dealing with a, an aspect of prayer that you haven't given much thought to. At today's passage, we have, um, just to set the scene with you for you, Moses has been up on Mount Sinai. And God has delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt. He has delivered them from slavery. He has entered into a covenant with them. But as Moses is, before he has even come down from the mountain with the marriage certificate, he discovers the people have been unfaithful. It's, it's, it's as if uh, Moses has, has come down and it's the wedding night and he's discovered there's already been adultery. And it's in the context of, of that uh, setting that, that you, you see the Israelites, they've, they've made the golden calf, they've begun to worship the calf instead of worshiping the God who had delivered them. Great unfaithfulness. And we see a prayer that will really become a turning point for the nation of Israel. You'll see Moses begin to plead on behalf of the, uh, of the nation of Israel, but it, his prayers become more like a marketplace negotiation. There are offers and counter-offers, and through that exchange, you begin to see God testing Moses' heart to find out what's really inside, what, what's really going on, and what he really wants, and what he is just flippantly asking as a, uh, as a, a request. When I, tell us, when, I, when I say that God tests us in prayer, and I believe that he does, he sometimes tests us in prayer to see what we'll settle for, we're not saying that God is stingy or that God is kind of looking for a better deal. What we are, what we are saying, however, is that sometimes God is testing us to see what's really in our heart, whether we have really thought about these things and whether we will just settle for second best or more so what, what he wants to do is to, 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 to give us a better gift. And, and the, the negotiation is intended to discern what's really in our heart and, and uh, whether we want the things that ultimately God wants to give us. If you turn with me, we're, we're in Exodus chapter 33. I'd encourage you to, to uh, at home, just read 
right from chapter 32 to verse 34 to see this whole section. Uh, but uh, I'm going to be reading from verses 12 to 19. In your pew Bibles in front of you, it's on page 68. Uh, and again, Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 to 19. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is the word of God. Now what I want you to see in this passage is that there are three tests that God will bring to Moses. And, and in each of them, he is trying to discern what he most wants, what is most important to him, and, and more importantly, is what Moses wants really uh, what is dearest to the heart of God. The first test is simple. Will you settle for a land of milk and honey without God's presence? If God were to give you all of the stuff that you want right now, but it came at the cost of less of him, would you take it? Are you willing to settle for a land of milk and honey without God's presence? Now, I've said that the pra this prayer between Moses and God occurs after the people have sinned in this golden calf incident. They were supposed to give their worship to God. He was the one that delivered them. He was the one who had been merciful to them. He was the one that they had entered into a covenant with, and yet they'd given their love to another. They had been unfaithful to him. And what follows is this marketplace exchange. And in a marketplace negotiation kind of way, we see God say to Moses in the beginning of, chapter, beginning of the chapter, backing up before we, where we read in verse 3, he says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. He's saying, look, I've delivered you from slavery. You can go into the promised land. And it really is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a good and bountiful place. But frankly, the people are so sinful that if I go with you, I'm liable to destroy all of you. You're just going to be facing just judgment after judgment after judgment, and it'd probably be best for the both of us if you just went on your own. And you couldn't fault the logic of, of this marketplace offer. Sound, sounded reasonable. From all that Moses has experienced of the people, this is likely how it's to unfold. 
maybe it would be better to just head in there, just take the land of milk and honey, take the abundance of the promised land, and maybe it's better we just keep our distance from God. You could have seen the, the attractiveness of the logic. But Moses will have none of it. In a shameless prayer, Moses says in verse 15, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. As far as Moses is concerned, he would rather live in the wilderness with God than live in a land of milk and honey without him. It just, what God is offering here is just a terrible deal. And he's not afraid to tell God it. In fact, his solution is in verse 3 where he asks God, well, how do, we, how do we live in such a way that would please you then? I, I, I understand we are going to face terrible judgment if we just keep rebelling against you and turning our backs on you. So show us how we would, we would live in such a way that would please you. Because the promised land without our God and without the, the one who goes before us is is not blessing. We, there is no sweetness in a land where God is not present. And so he pursues him. He wants God's presence at all costs, and he won't let go of him in prayer until he gets that. He, he seeks God for more of him. I, I wonder how you would have responded if you'd have been given that offer. If God said to you, look, you can have all of the stuff you can have the promised land. You can have that land of milk and honey. It's just going to come at a cost of less of me. Would, would you have settled for less? Would you have said, well, I, I think I can do that. I think maybe I could, I, I could, I could put up with that. Maybe it would be safer anyway. Would you have settled? Because God will give you what you settle for, but he hopes that you won't settle for less of him. Now, I don't know if any of you have a, uh, does anyone have a child with a, I want, some, I want some stuff voice, like a particular voice that they will use when they want something from you. Uh, I mean, there may be different versions of this, but I'm particularly thinking of that voice that's, uh, that where the tone is a little higher, uh, the, the, the feeling is a little bit more cheerful than usual. It, it's, it's that voice that says, Dad, or mom, and you're like, boy, this is a little more, this is, this is a nice voice. This, they seem to be in a good mood. This, I think they want to spend some time with me. I, I think maybe they want to hear my wisdom and advice about the meaning of life, and maybe they want to sit down and discuss scripture. This is fantastic. And then you hear what comes out of their mouth next, and of course, it's none of those things. They want some stuff. And the I want some stuff voice was to set you up and to make you ready for the fact that they're going to ask you for some stuff. And I think that we can do something like that with God. Oh, we've been seeing through this series that God is a generous God, right? God loves to give us good gifts. He's, he's generous to us. He gives and he gives and he gives. But when I hear the... I want some stuff voice. I'm, I'm not really, it's not that I'm offended. It's not that I'm put off. I, I love to give my, my kids good gifts. I, I love to meet their needs. I, I, I love it that they look to me for, for things. But I hope that it's more than that. 
I hope that they want more than the stuff. And I hope that at the end of the day, there's, there's a desire for relationship. And I think that's what's going on in this passage here. That God is a good and generous God that gives us good gifts, but he's hoping that we want more than the stuff. He's hoping that we want his presence in our lives, that we want him to be a part of it. And even a recognition that the stuff without him isn't really worth having. It's that desire for, for relationship that goes beyond the stuff. We, we've faced tests in, in prayer like this all the time, I think. There, there's, prayer, there's tests that we re, we, where we face this issue in the big things of life, the big decisions of life, but also in tons of tiny little decisions as well. You face this, this decision when you're offered a job and it feels like, oh, this is exactly what I wanted because I needed more money and this came at just at the perfect time. But you know that that particular job involves compromise. It'll mean a little more stuff and a little less God. And so you're tested. You're finding out what it is that you most want or look for. Or maybe it comes with a relationship. Maybe you think, finally, I've been praying for this relationship for so long. This just feels so perfect. This feels so right. It's everything I wanted. But you know that this is a particular relationship that God forbids. It will involve a little more of what you want for a little less God. And you're tested to see what it is that you really want. There are different ways that we face those tests, but ultimately God will come to times in our lives where he will test what it is that we want. And, 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 and there is a negotiation that takes place. And in the midst of that negotiation, we find as well what we want, want in life, what we're willing to settle for. And it is in that negotiation that we really learn something about ourselves and we learn something about the nature of our faith and our relationship with God. And when that moment comes and you are asked, will I settle for a land of milk and honey without God, I want to call you to, 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 reject, to reject God's second best, to reject the stuff when it comes at the expense of God, and to give yourself to one who invites us to something greater. So we find that test when we, when, when we are faced with a land of milk and, milk and honey that comes at the expense of God. But there's a second test that God gives Moses, and it's different. Will you settle for God's blessing for you, but not for others? It, it is that test of if you have an opportunity for God's blessing in your life, but you know that it comes at the expense of God's blessing in other people's lives, are you okay with that? Are you in it just for you, or are you in it for others as well? Will you settle for God's blessing for you, but not for other people? Now, this test may have actually been a greater temptation to Moses. I think he might have struggled with this one more than the other. He's negotiated with God, told him that he doesn't want to go anywhere without him. He knows that he wants God in his life, and that it's God that makes his blessing blessed, and so he won't settle. But in verse 14, God makes an interesting proposition. He says, 
My presence will give, go with you, and I will give you rest. In the English translation, it gets, uh, we, we, we miss the nuance here, but the offers are both singular. What he's saying is, okay, I, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to go with you. I recognize we have a sinful people here. I would, just, I would just crush them and judge them for their sin. But I'm willing to go into the, into the promised land, I'll, but I'll just do it with you, Moses. And let's leave these others behind. It, he's repeating, in fact, a, uh, uh, an, another offer that he's already made back in Exodus chapter 32, verse 10. That was right after the golden calf incident, right after the, the discovery that the people have rejected the Lord on, on, on the wedding night. That's where God said to Moses in Exodus 32.10, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Of you, Moses. I will, I will judge this people because you know how sinful they are. You know how rebellious they are. But I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And this had to be appealing. Because the people of Israel have been grumbling against Moses and fighting against his leadership, opposing him right from day one. And then God comes and says, you know those worries and headaches and the people that have given you so much trouble? How about I just wipe them out? We'll start a new nation with you. He's thinking, that, that'd be great. That'd solve all your problems, right? And then pride kicks in. Then you start thinking, well, if we started a new nation and they had me as their example, like, they'd be amazing. Like, if it was just me and my descendants, like, you know how amazing I am. They'd all be great, and we wouldn't have any of these worries. And you could see Moses starting to think about some of the... the the, the things that his pride will drive him to. And then there's the fact that they wouldn't be called the Israelites anymore, right? They'd be called the Mosesites. Kind of like the sound of that. Like, now I'm at the center of God's plan. And maybe in Sunday school someday, instead of singing Father Abraham and his many... No, they'll be singing Father Moses and his many sons. And, and, and children will be getting overexcited about, you know, the, about me, singing about my name. And all those temptations go through Moses' head. And yet, he realizes this is a bad deal. God's blessing for me when it comes to the expense of others, not, I don't want that. He, he realizes this, this is a, a deal to be rejected. He pleads for God's forgiveness for them. In Exodus, Exodus 32, verse 32, he says, but now if you'll forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. He, he's ready to, to give up his own place in the promised land if it means saving, saving others. Similar pleading is going on in Moses' prayer in verse 13 where he says, consider too that this nation is your people. Don't, don't give up on them. Remember, You've, you've saved this people. You've delivered them. You've entered into a covenant with them. Don't give up on them. Don't let them go. And you could read this the wrong way. You could read this exchange as if 
God's kind of reluctant and he doesn't really like to forgive people. But Moses is way more compassionate and he's got to kind of arm wrestle God into being forgiving. And you could read this the wrong way and think, God's kind of got a lousy memory and he just, oh, oh those are my people? I kind of forgot about that. Thanks for reminding me, Moses. You, you could misread this and think, oh, Moses is giving God some instructions and God's going to come out a better person. But obviously that's not what's going on. This is a marketplace negotiation where God is testing Moses' heart. He wants to find out in the midst of this prayer, does he want the things that I want for this people? Does he care about them or is it all about him? And you and I know God does that in our prayer negotiations with him all the time. He wants to know, is it all about you? I don't mind you bringing me the prayer. I don't mind that we pray about you. I don't mind that, we, we, that, that you want me to do this in your life. But is it just about you? Is there any concern for the others? Do you recognize this is my people? Do you recognize that there are others? Do you care about them as much as I do? That kind of exchange going on as we, as we seek God's face. What does God find when he tests you? When he tests your prayers? Does he find that your prayers are mostly about you and your stuff? You and your needs and you and your problems? And we've said, God, God wants your prayers to be about those things. God invites you because he is a gracious and generous God. He does love to pour out his blessing on you. But like the stuff versus his presence, he's hoping it's more than just that. He's hoping that it's not just about you. One of the reasons that we keep encouraging you, get the prayer guide. Read the prayer guide. Do more than read the prayer guide. Pray the prayer guide. Gather your family around to pray the prayer guide. Join us on Wednesday nights to pray the prayer guide. Not because there's anything special about the prayer guide, but it is a tool to help you pray for others that God cares about. To, to strategically pray for the people in the family of God that God has placed around you. And we're tested in prayer to see, is it about me or is it about we? That's what we, we learn from the Lord's Prayer. There, there's no me in there. It, it's not that God doesn't want us to bring our prayers to him. He just doesn't want it to be only about us. He wants us to look around, to lift up others, to pray for others in the family of God, and to pray for neighbors and others in our community. He wants us to share his heart for those that are uh, those that are around us. And so he will negotiate with us in prayer to see what it is that we'll settle for. So God tests us in prayer to see what we'll settle for. Maybe though, by this point, you're thinking, I, I, I think that Moses has passed all the tests. Surely there's nothing more. He doesn't want the stuff without God's blessing. He doesn't want it just for himself. He wants it for others as well. And he's, he's even willing to sacrifice those things because he cares more about what God cares about than he cares about himself. So you might have thought this negotiation is over. We're expecting, 
I'm going to hear the sound of the cash register soon, and exchange is going to take place. But there's one more. The last test is this. Will you settle for God's help but not his glory? Do you ultimately just want God to answer your prayers? Or do you ultimately want to see more of God himself? Do you want to see more of his glory, his weightiness, his bigness, his vastness, his majesty? Or is it really about a list of things for stuff? God tests us in prayer. He'll see what we are willing to settle for. Will you settle for God's help, but not his glory? We've said that we're in the market, and we've been over, overhearing this exchange between Moses and God, and they are offering and counter-offering, and, and uh, there's an exchange going back and forth. And finally, it sounds like they've agreed on the terms. You get to verse 17, and it says, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you've spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by, by name. Honestly here, you're praying to God. You've asked him for a bunch of things. There's been a little bit of exchange. You've passed some tests. You care about the things that God cares about. But you come to the point in the prayer where God says, I'll give you exactly what you've asked me for. What, what's your response? I don't know about you. My mother taught me at that point to say thank you very much. Right? Moses doesn't do that. Moses doesn't say thank you very much. He says, God, I'd like some more. I'd like some more. He says in verse 18, pleading, please show me your glory. The word glory means something like heaviness. Show me how big you are. Show me, show me what a heavyweight you are. Show me how strong you are, how majestic, and give me a bigger vision of who you are because that's what I most need. That's what I, that's what I most want. I, I, I've asked you for this stuff, and, and, and I, I need this stuff, and, and, and I want the stuff, but I want something more than all that stuff. I want a vision of who you are of how great you are. I want to see your glory. It's important that you see why he does that. Moses realizes at this point in his life that he is going to have to lead people with extraordinary tendencies to sin. If on the wedding night that they, they have committed adultery, he knows that this is going to be a rocky marriage. This is going to be a tough relationship. And he knows that he is standing in the gap. He is going to bear the brunt of much of this. He's already felt the grumbling and the, the opposition to his leadership, and he knows that he's going to feel more of it. He knows that it'll probably get worse, not better. And he feels his own weakness. He knows that, frankly, it could be him down with a golden calf instead of Aaron next time. He knows his own tendency of his heart to wander. He knows how difficult this, this will be. He doesn't know at this point that it'll be another 40 years before they get into the, into the promised land. He, he doesn't know at this point that 
there are giants in that promised land. Yes, there, there is milk and honey, but there are giants in the land. There will be huge challenges and difficulties. He doesn't know everything to come, but he knows I need more than a few tips and a little bit of help. I, I need the glory of God. I need to see God in his weightiness, in his vastness, in his majesty. I need to see God for who he is. And so he seeks it. He wants another burning bush moment. He wants another parting of the Red Sea. He wants to see the the plagues of Egypt. He wants to see God in all of his glory. In verse 19, God promises to answer what could only be described as a shameless prayer for God to show his glory. He gets to this point, and I think God says, that's exactly what I want you to ask for. I'm glad that you keep coming. I'm glad that you didn't settle for the stuff. I'm glad that you didn't settle for just you. I'm glad that you didn't settle for just getting your boxes checked off on your list. I'm glad that you wanted more than that, that you wanted my glory in your life. God promises to answer a prayer that we would only say, that's, that's too big, that's too bold, too, too demanding. <laughs> Quit while you're ahead. No, he wants more. But even as he answers Moses and promises to respond to them, you'll see right at the end of verse 19, there's that interesting phrase, right? That phrase about showing mercy to whom he'll show mercy and compassion to whom he'll show compassion. There's been this exchange and this negotiation between God and Moses, and Moses could have come to this point and thought, I think I've got God wrapped around my finger. I think I'm calling the shots in this relationship. I think I can kind of tell God what to do and, and, and send him to do my bidding. And God says, Moses, I love your negotiation. I love that you don't settle. I love that you want the things that I want. But don't forget who's master and who's servant in the relationship. You didn't deserve this. I don't give you this stuff because I owe you. But I'm a gracious God, but I'll show grace to who I show grace. I'll show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. And I'll show compassion to whom I'll show. I'm still Lord in this relationship. I'm still Lord in this earth. And so don't start thinking that I'm a genie in the bottle that pops up whenever you tell me to. He's still the one in control in the relationship. Have you ever prayed for God to show you his glory? Do you ever pray to see more of God in your life? More of who he is, more of his weightiness. If, if you're facing a crossroads in your career, you really feel the pressure of, of, of your job and what it's squeezing you to do. Yes, you need some wisdom from God. Yes, you need some help. Yes, you need strength. But ultimately, you need more than that. You need the glory of God in your life, a sense of his weightiness. Because only when God is big that our problems seem small. If you're facing a health challenge, a diagnosis that frankly scares you, and, and, and you don't 
you feel helpless and powerless. Yes, God wants you to pray about that. Yes, of course, we pray for healing. Yes, of course, we look to him for strength and help. But we need something more than that. We need God's glory in our life. We need to see him for who he is, to recognize his majesty and experience his vastness. We need to recognize how big he is. And it's only as we feel and see and experience that that we have this strength to go in, recognizing these people are small, I'm small, this problem is small, God alone is big. He's the heavyweight. You pray for that. Or do you settle for less? Now, one of the things that I've taught you as we've read through the scriptures is that if you want to find out what is important to an author in a particular passage, you look for a repetition. They didn't use different typefaces. They didn't have bold and italic and underline. They didn't have, use highlighters in the original manuscripts of scripture. So they repeated things that they wanted you to recognize were important, things that they didn't want you to miss. And you may have noticed, or not, as we were reading down from verses 12 to 17, there was a particular phrase that got repeated again and again and again. It's actually repeated four times in those, in those uh, 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 six verses. The phrase is, found favor in your sight. Found favor in your sight. Or, conversely, if it's coming from God's perspective, found favor in my sight. And, and that phrase is repeated again and again and again because at the heart of this negotiation is Moses leveraging his favor with God on behalf of a sinful people. He knows that if it's up to uh, if it's up to them, there is no way that they have any expectation of receiving God's goodness. They have been a sinful people. They have rebelled against God. They have been unfaithful to him. They are totally unworthy of any grace, any goodness, any blessing from God. But Moses, he uses his position. He's the one who's been up on the up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, fasting and seeking the face of God. He's the one that God says, I speak to you as a, as a man speaks with his friend face to face. He has the special and the privileged relationship with God. And as Moses pray, prays, he musters all of that favor with God on behalf of a sinful people. And the message of this passage, particularly if you read from chapter 32 to 34, you get the full context the strong message here, if Moses hadn't leveraged his favor with God, these people would have been wiped out, done for, judgment. Even as a reader, you're reading through and you're thinking, if I was God, I would have wiped them out already. I, I, I couldn't have tolerated this, couldn't have let it go on. And yet Moses leverages his, his favor with the Father and they're spared. They're delivered. The question I have for you is, who's leveraging their favor with God for you? Who is it that will stand? Because although we've been talking about this exchange between Moses and God, we need to recognize, right, that we look an awful lot more like the Israelites at the bottom of the mountain worshiping the golden calf than we do 
then we do look like Moses who's up on Mount Sinai and fasting for 40 days and 40 nights seeking the face of God, right? Like you, I don't know about, I, I, I suspect that we look more like that than the other, right? We're the Israelites, we're not Moses. Who's leveraging their favor before God for you? I've got a mediator. I have someone who leverages his favor with God on my behalf. I I have someone who is seeking the Father for my forgiveness when I know that I don't deserve it. When I know that I have fallen and I have rebelled against God, when I have sinned against God, I have one who stands and pleads before the Father on my behalf. Hebrews 7.25 says of Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost, and that means completely, wholly, finally, all, all the way. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, through faith in Jesus Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus didn't just die to take the penalty of sin for me, although he did. But the scriptures, were, the scriptures declare that he is in negotiations right now before the Father on my behalf. When I sin, Jesus stands on my behalf and says, I've covered that one. Spare him. Forgive him for that. I've, I've covered him with my sacrifice. He stands as my great high priest. He stands as my mediator. He stands as that one who will leverage his favor with the Father on my behalf. Who do you have that leverages their favor with the Father on your behalf? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ so that you know he is the one who stands for me? Have you given yourself to him in such a way that you have confidence not in your own self, not that I have lived this perfect life, therefore God, he must love to have me on his team. No, not that, that he stands in the gap that it is his favor with the Father on my behalf that has secured my, my place with the Father, secured my forgiveness, secured his grace. I'd urge you to, to lay hold of that to take hold of that, and we do that, as the verse says here, through faith in him, by trusting in him. When you put your faith in Jesus, he secures a place for you in the promised land. But just don't be, don't, don't just settle for that. Since he didn't settle with you, he doesn't want you to settle for God's second best. Have you settled for a land of milk and honey if it comes at the expense of the presence of God? Have you traded more of God in your life for more of the stuff that you want? Don't do that. That's a terrible deal. Are you content to just seek God for your own blessing? Is it just about you or the prayers about me? Are you lifting up others in the family of God? Lifting up others, neighbors and friends in the community? And do you believe that what you most need is not just all of the boxes, all of the stuff, all of the things that you've been asking him here for, but ultimately more of his glory.
because that's what he'd ultimately love to give you. That's what he'd love to pour out in your life. And he just, he's just negotiating with you to see whether you'll settle for less than that, whether your heart's not really in it for him and for all that he wants to do. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us not to settle for small prayers about a small God. We don't just want the stuff of this world. We want you. We want your presence in our lives. We want more of you. We want to experience more of your glory. Help us to see how weighty you are, how big and heavy you are, so that we can ultimately see how small people are and how small our problems are. Father, we also just don't want this blessing for ourselves. We want to take others with us. We want your blessing for them as well. So hear our, hear our prayers, for we lift them up in Jesus' name.